All right. Um, this is, I think I'm up now, right? Yeah. I'm Tina, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tina. Oh, wow. When I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I was, um, when I was born into the fumes of alcoholism and drug abuse, I was, um, my father was absent from go. My, um, my mom was a, um, a very sick lady and I was institutionalized. I became a ward of the state when I was about 18 months old and I was institutionalized for nine years. Um, I met my father one time, uh, I think I was like 21 or 22 years old. He's some French guy, he lives in, um, in uh, Toronto. And, um, and I remember I called him because my sister had said, hey, you know, um, I know where he is and I thought that's strange you know we've never even had any conversation about our father before so uh, and then she was just like pulling my leg or lying to me so um, I remember getting on the phone and I'm very determined like a very intense kind of person so I you know I called and called every every R Dutrasac he has a very distinct name and so I thought well it won't be too hard to find this guy and I called it. I called the Rhonda Dutrasac. I called the R Dutrasac. And then I call. And then I got tired of calling. And and I said to this one guy, R Dutrasac. I, I called him up and I said, um, I asked him. You know, I uh, it was a direct call to Raymond Dutrasac. And so he said, Yeah, you know. And um, and then he, when he didn't like being tricked, you know. So he had. Um, he was a little bit upset and I, I asked him, do, do you remember Catherine Ann Haggerty? And anyway, so he kind of like, like paused, very long pause. And then he said, you know, why did you call me up in, in this kind of manner and such, right? And, um, and, and then he remembered my mom's name, you know, he had said, you know, why did you say, ask me if I knew Catherine Ann Haggerty? So he kind of like seemed like familiar. So I, I, um, when I was a kid all along, I didn't really like blame him or anything. I, I just thought maybe he was like, you know, my mom was a beautiful woman. Maybe he was just whipped. Maybe he had, he had problems, you know, and he wasn't even my mother's husband. So, you know, love makes concessions. Anyway, I remember talking to him that day and, and he begged me, please, please, please never call me again. And, um, and, and I said, you know, I just said my piece. I thought I was really gonna be nasty all my life. And I just said my piece. I said, if you're this man, you know this man, or you come to meet this man, let him know that his daughter believes that he was good for nothing, you know? And, you know, when, um, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, the things that I thought about changed. Nothing really moved except my perception. I felt sorry for him because I feel like he ripped himself off because I'm a great person, you know, and he, he, he's out, you know. And so, um, and here in, in AA, he doesn't have any anonymity and who knows, maybe one day he'll hear me talking and he'll come up and say, hey, how you doing, you know? And, um, and so, um, hopefully, but um, I just let it go. And my mom, in the same respect, I, I just, I honor my mother and my father. I, I can respect him for a man for whatever decision he makes, whether it's for me or against me, so long as he, he stands to it. And you know what, I didn't have to live in his circumstance. So um, in the same respect, uh, my, I, I love my mother. My mother was there, but not all there. My mom was a, a pharmaceutical adult fiend with occasional heroin alcohol problem. And this is why the dynamics in my life caused me to be, uh, to be in the situation that I was in. So uh, needless to say, when I was a child, I was um, an orphan and I grew up in a lot of um, foster care situations orphanages, group homes, and stuff like that. And so there was a lot of dynamics, you know? And I just became this great chameleon, you know? And, um, and I always took something from the outside to change how I felt on the inside because 
I really like couldn't articulate in words, you know, to say, hey, I'm afraid, you know, I, I um, I just, uh, I never let anybody close enough to me to, to hurt me or leave me. And so, um, and I had, comp I had a, I had to, I felt like I had to rely on myself, you know, and it was strange because like God, if you come from where I come from and God's all you ever know, that's all you you know that's all I ever had that's what I knew and he was like my imaginary friend you know my bush league pinch hitter it's like what have you done for me lately you do this you, you know I'll you do that you hang out over here I'll be back I'll handle this you know and uh today I don't have that kind of relationship with um with the God of my understanding me for me he's the father of the fatherless and um and he's been all along you know he's taken me all along he's never brought me this far to drop me on my head and so um i did a lot of indulgence i actually did a lot of indulgence um i indulged in a lot of um terror and i indulged in a lot of rage i indulged in in a lot of um in, in a lot of violence and stuff. And then I started to indulge in, in um, different substances to kind of like self-medicate myself. And so by the time I was 19 years old, I was a, um, a complete uh, drug addict and I was hanging out in MacArthur Park and I didn't know how to stop. And so I did, I met him, he became my higher power. I went to a farm in Minnesota, in Newport, Minnesota. It was like I had the monkey off my back, but the circus was still in town. It was right about here going, yep, 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 yep. I lost my whole contempt for alcohol that day, and I went down to the Circle K, and I scored myself some booze. Because I thought booze, you know, I thought it was for weak-willed people. I thought it was, like, for hobos and transients and people who needed it, you know, like, to, like, stay warm as we're cold out. <laughs> and so... um I, I didn't have my I didn't have a full-blown alcoholic experience until I was done with that other with those other things and um, and you know I needed God one more time to do for me what I could not do for myself and um, my mom passed away on Valentine's Day 1999 um, she came out of the insane asylum many times and and gave it to try to share a message with us because somebody did H and I and shared a message with her of hope, you know, and um, and she in turn brought my sister into Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, when my mom passed away, my sister had three years of sobriety, and I wasn't I wasn't done, you know. I, I had all these theories that if they had gotten help, I would have been okay. I'm not the one with the problem, and alcohol was not the problem; it was the solution, and so. Um, and then, you know, I had, like I said, I had to have a full-blown alcoholic experience of my very own. And I remember the day my mom passed away, I was so angry and, and, um, and misery loves company. So I went to my sister and I said, because I knew it was only three years and, and, I, um, and I had the audacity. I said, is it time? And she goes, no, it's not. And um, she, um, she said, finish up. She hit me on the back because she had a better plan. We were gonna go to an AA meeting to, at the Tropical Cafe in, um, in Silver Lake, on Silver Lake and Sunset. And I remember that meeting that day, I had like a truckload of resentment. I needed 12 strong men to help me tote it through the door. And they had, the topic was gratitude. And I was like wet, you know? And, and they were like, hey honey, tell us what it's like. And I said, how about if I throw up all over you? And then you can tell me how grateful you are. And I became like an AA terrorist. And so um, for five years, I was wet. And, and you know, I, I didn't, I had a perception difficulty. Um, when they said, you know, keep coming back, I thought they were jeering at me, like, hey, 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 you know. And, and then I, I, I was rude and nasty. And I'd say, let me get out of here before I marinate something in your parking lot. And then... Um, it was just, it was, I was just nuts, you know, not using the steps at all. And then, like I said, I came to the end of my own experience and it happened like not in a way that I would ever imagine. It was me and one policeman and, um, and, and he's, and anyway, 
he gave me the sobriety test and then he let me go. And so, um, and you know what? I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired that day. I almost begged him to take me with him. Please take me with you. You know what I mean? And I remember, um, I remember um, talking, to, I remember saying to God, God, please don't let anything happen to me you won't help me with. And I heard this still small voice that I hadn't heard in a long, long time tell me you're going to have to do something. And so um, I, I, I heard it and I said, um, and he let me go. And, and then the next uh, couple of days later, I don't know when it was. I know it was Cinco de Mayo. I know it was um, a Saturday and I know it was the year 2000. And I went to the Shakers in Glendale because I was invited one more time to an AA meeting. And it was a woman's meeting. They were reading chapter nine. And it was one sentence in chapter nine that brought me to, it broke me. And, and it said the children were expressing cordial hatred because nobody ever saw a drink in my hand, you know? They just thought, oh my God, mother is just all crazy. <laughs> and so um, I, I remember surrendering that day when they came to me, everybody was laughing and I was the only one crying because I was identifying with the guy in the book. And, and I said, I'm Tina, I'm an alcoholic. And I mean, three women flew off their chairs. One of them came over and we're gonna have to put this guardian angel pin on you. And I. I was like, you ladies are making me nervous. I go, look, you know, I thought it was because I was hanging out in Glendale, living in Glendora, but hanging out in Glendale, that that's why I was stayed sick so long. Anyway, um, they were just trying to love me, and I ran from from that. I, I, I feared that which conquers fear, and it was all about love. And they were trying to love me, and they kept telling me to keep coming back, keep coming back. And I don't know about you, but... I, I didn't hear that from my core people. They, they were saying, don't come around here more, no more. We're calling the police. So when you guys said, come back, that was the best I could do is, you know, I, I was willing to become willing. I didn't know the way. And in the meantime, I just kept coming back. So if you're new or fairly new, you know, and the best that you can do is to just keep coming back, you know, we, that's a willingness right there in itself. So I appreciate you guys. I love you, and um, and we're gonna hear from John now. Thank you. This is for you. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tina. My name is John. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, John. Thanks, Les, for asking me to come out and share tonight. And uh, it's always a privilege and an honor. And like Tina said, you know. When I was hanging around places, they wanted me to go away. And uh, I feel welcome here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got, I got a timer right here, so I won't go over guaranteed. So anyway, uh, I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is April 17th, 1995. And uh, it's not a day I picked. It was just the day that happened. And uh, I'll tell you how I, I got to that date. During my story, hopefully, um, I grew up in, uh, I guess, suburbs of Chicago, a uh, reasonable neighborhood. Um, my mom had a thing about she would uh, buy a house, fix it up, sell a house, move, buy a house, fix it up, sell a house, move. And that was kind of the thing. And it was like every two years I was put into another school system and I never really felt part of what was going on. I had to make, remake friends and I uh, never really felt part of. Uh, one day I came home and I had a school picture and all these kids are like this, you know, gleaming and stuff. And I'm like, and my mom said, why aren't you smiling? I, I thought I was. I didn't know. It's like, <laughs> that type of thing. So anyway, um, so I, I just, like I said, I never really felt part of anything. And, just moved around and moved around. We ended up in this uh, <clears throat> suburb off of Michigan City, Indiana. It was right on Lake Michigan. It was a, it was a nice town. Had a golf course, and the lake was there. And uh, it, I, I became acquainted with most of the people around there. And even in that city, we moved five times before I graduated from high school. So we were just in the moving mode. And. Uh, 
I don't remember my first drink. It was relayed to me that my parents used to have bridge parties and little Johnny, little toddler Johnny would walk around and ask, ask for more. You in trouble hearing me? Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, people would give me their drinks and I would crawl off and go to sleep and everybody thought that was cute and funny. And uh, that's how I got started. Uh, I first time I remember actively getting uh, drinks was uh, coming home after school. I lived in nice neighborhoods. We'd go down to the basement. Parents would have liquor cabinets, and we'd start sampling what was in the liquor cabinet. And I and I remember that I always got sick, but it didn't stop me. It just well I won't drink that. Then I go to something else. I won't drink that. And I was something else. But eventually I graduated to beer. Beer was easy. And it, I could keep it down. And so I just became a beer drinker most of my life. And uh, in, that, in that city, we ended up in a, a property that was right across the parking lot from uh, the country club there in the golf course. And we had a nice view of the 18th fairway. And uh, one day, my friend came over and said we uh, they left a couple of kegs of beer on the first tee there's nobody there uh, what do you think we should how do we think we i don't know so some guys spent the night at my house some guys spent the night in somebody's tree house something like that you know my story was totally different i, I got together with some kids that i graduated with uh, at a reunion about four years ago, and John Barrett had a totally different story about the same event, you know. But anyway, we got these beers and, and this keg of beer. We rolled it down the hill, and we set it up between the first hole and the 18th hole in this little wooded area. We thought it was very secure. And if you're looking back on it, it was just a couple of trees sitting there in the middle of the fairway. And uh, so we started drinking this stuff at like one o'clock in the morning, something like that. And you know, as time goes on and you get a little buzz going, you know, we start singing songs in the 60s and and uh, everybody was having a great old time and all of a sudden the spotlight comes around the curve of this service road and uh, so we all took off running and one of the kids there had polio when he was younger, he couldn't move so he got caught. So we decided to turn ourselves in so we, we did that and uh, it was right about the time that uh, my my dad had his first heart attack. And the reason why we moved into this house is because it had a flat, you couldn't climb any stairs anymore. You're supposed to not climb stairs. So it was a flat building and uh, it had a basement and we snuck out of there. But anyway, he had to climb these stairs because the police department was on the second floor of the fire department. And he got out there, he was all red in the face that type of thing. And my, my punishment for that was uh, I, I had to pay $20 out of my allowance for that keg of beer. Now, I don't know how much a, a keg of uh, Michelob cost back in the in the 60s. I'm sure it wasn't $20, but I was kind of mad about that. And other guys had to get their head shaved. Other people had other kinds of punishment. They were in a band, so they called themselves the Monks. So it seemed to fit. And uh, that was my punishment. And not too long after that, my dad passed away with a second heart attack. And uh, I just kind of took it on myself that I was at fault for that. And I, I immediately went to the fact that my God, my understanding was punishing me for whatever I was doing wrong. And that's pretty much how I operated for a long time. And then I went off to college and the first thing I did was find a fraternity that would accept me, and uh, fraternities are, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Animal House, but that's a pretty good representation of the fraternity I pledged. And uh, I drank at parties most every day, um, and if there wasn't a party, there was always a big brother around that would go get some beer and we'd go drink. Uh, I barely saw a classroom. Uh, I had a job, a dishwasher at one of the dormitories, so I showed up for that just so I could have money 
uh, to buy alcohol, but uh, after three semesters at that institution, my grade point average was 0 0.05. <laughs> Just something to be really proud of, I guess. I've, I've beaten a couple of people, and some people have beat me in that, that GPA thing. And uh, that was like uh, 1969, and uh, the war in Vietnam was, was going, and uh, they had a draft system going on. They pulled out your birthday and match it up with a number. And my birthday corresponded with the number 12. And I knew I was going. I called up my draft board. They weren't going to reinstate my student status. I can't believe that. And they, um, they said, well, you're going to get drafted. And I said, well, OK. Well, instead of getting drafted, I joined the Navy. I'm a draft dodger. I joined the Navy. and. Uh, the, the recruiter, he just loved it when I walked in the door. He says, I got a program for you. you know, they always got really good programs. What it was was uh, six, six years service, two years active duty, and four years reserve time. So I said, okay, I can do that. You know, once a month I go play war and stuff, and every two weeks in the summer go out on a, on a ship or something like that. So I signed up for that. And, uh, you know, I didn't do too many drugs up until the point until I got in the Navy. And uh, the only reason was is because, you know, booze was, you know, big containers and stuff like that. And you'd get a little powder, a packet of little powder and a little baggie of weed and stuff like that. It was easier to keep, keep in your uh, locker. So um, I, got, I got used to that kind of lifestyle. And uh, we used to go out on the, on the ship and you put a little... Uh, powder at the bottom of a cigarette, light it up and get that quick hit and it wouldn't smell. So that was what we were kind of used to. And then when I got out of the service, I went uh, back to school on the GI Bill, That's, that was my income. And uh, I managed to go to school and attend classes and I had grades, imagine that. So, I found out the secret of getting good grades is to go to class. <laughs> and the teacher would say, this is going to be on the test. And, oh, okay. I write that down. It's a pretty easy way to do it, right? <laughs> the only way you could do that. So anyway, I, just, I, I went to school for a long time on the GI Bill until it ran out. And then I, I got a job. I just accidentally fell into the sales, outside sales job. and. Uh, that's a great job for an alcoholic. You go out and take customers out to lunch, and you drink your lunch, and you go about your day. And uh, it's just pretty much the way I operated. And in that time, I met this woman that had two kids. They were preteens. And I, in my mind, I thought it was crazy. The whole time I thought it was crazy. I never wanted to pass that gene along, so I didn't want to have kids. This woman had two kids. It was perfect. They were already out, you know, and they were, they were halfway developed, and I thought that sooner or later they would leave home. And uh, yeah, I hear you laughing. I understand. Um, so we set up camp and uh, you know set up house and that kind of thing. And then we, eventually we got married, and and uh, the kids got older, and it didn't seem like they were making any progress of leaving home. So being the good alcoholic that I am, I just got drunk at him and I yell and scream at him at night to try and get him get out of the house. <laughs> and it, it worked eventually, but uh, everybody left. And so, but you know, I'm the kind of alcoholic that you know, as it says in the book, that you'll never find me mildly intoxicated, and I become very antisocial. And that that was me to the T, right there and then. Uh, you can find me mildly intoxicated probably about 8 o'clock in the morning after I just uh, came to. And I could probably still flunk the test. You know, if you, if you gave me a blood test at 8 o'clock in the morning, I probably would be above the legal limit because I just drank. I drank all night long until I passed out. And if I woke up in the, in the middle of the night on the couch and you know, there was a beer in front of me, I'd finish it and go to bed. It's just the way I lived for that time. And... Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, we're getting down to the thing, and uh, I said, this is like uh, March 17th, and uh, in a month I'll be uh, 28 years sober. So in, in March of, of that year, they had all left the house, and I thought that was, and I had moved so that they could move out of the house. I was living in this apartment complex over on Citrus and Arrow. Uh, I don't know what it's called now. I think it's called South Point or not like that. 
and it was a one-bedroom furnished apartment. It had to be furnished apartment because I needed a refrigerator. That was the only requirement, you know. So I, I had a refrigerator. I could keep beer in it, and you know what I was eating at the time pretty much was like snack food because I would go to a bar at three o'clock in the afternoon, and they have happy hours, and that's a great way to eat. Happy hour food, you know, potato skins, pretzels, hot dogs, whatever. That's that's what what I lived on if I could eat because I was so poisoned by alcohol that I would shake in the morning until I could get some alcohol in me. And if I tried to eat something, I would get gag comp, you know, syndrome because I couldn't put anything down without drinking. And that's where I was at a, a month before my sobriety. That's where I, I was at. I finally got back in the house. Uh, they had all left. Um, they gave me the ultimatum before that said you either quit drinking or we're going to leave and i said this is the only object of this whole situation is for you to leave so they did uh, but you know i didn't want my ex-wife to leave but she left too and because she was afraid of me and i don't blame her so um and i finally got back in the house and uh it's just that was the way i was living you know the, the book talks about that the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. I don't really understand too much about the allergy. I have allergies. I have allergy to earth. I sneeze a lot. And I have allergy to penicillin. If I get penicillin in me, I swell up. But I couldn't understand the alcohol part of that. And the obsession of the mind, I understood that because I lived that obsession every day. You know, there would be a point at night where I would get up off the couch and trip over every piece of furniture to the refrigerator and get a beer and open it up and come back and trip over everything in there and saying, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I don't understand why I'm doing this. I could, I could nail that down. I didn't understand it. But I, that's just the way I lived. And uh, one morning, <clears throat> excuse me, I need a drink too because it'd be a little dry. One morning, I, I woke up, and it was a, a Monday morning on April 17, 1995. Uh, I had just spent Easter Sunday in the bar of, of my choice. It was over in Diamond Bar. It was called Castle O'Brien's, and it used to be right, was right across the golf course, the Diamond Bar golf course. And I, I spent the morning in there because I would get a schooner a beer and it would just sit in front of me and I could lean over and I could drink it until I could pick it up and drink it. My hands be shaking so bad. And that's that's pretty much the way it was. And uh, they had a buffet going on there and I grabbed a couple of tacos off the buffet and it was a beautiful morning, you know, like Easter Sunday there and the Sunday brunch. And I'm looking around and all these families are walking in and out of there. I'm sitting in the bar side of that place and I'm all by myself. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm seeing myself. I've never saw, you know, I've, I've been in a bar before by myself. I kind of prefer that. I don't have to, you know, interact with anybody. But I'm just sitting there looking at that and I had a flashback. You know, when my dad worked at this bank, there was a bar right next door and we'd go out to lunch or something like that. I'd come back and I'd peek in. The bars, they always fascinated me. You know, people, the, the glasses clattering, the people laughing and stuff like that. And I looked in there, it was like noon, and uh, there was one guy sitting at the bar. And I kind of flashed on that and said, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to end up like that. And I remember thinking that, I don't want to end up like that. And I'm sitting in this bar some 50 years or 40 years later, and I'm thinking, that's me, that's me. So I, I ended up going home and I, I bought a 12-pack or 18-pack on the way home. And it was that night, it was my last drink. You know, it was I, I couldn't get drunk. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get drunk. Finally laid down to go to sleep. I wasn't very sleepy. And I was having auditory hallucinations. I thought people were coming in and out of the house and, and laughing and yelling, screaming. I'm there all by myself. Just an awful night. And I got up that Monday morning. And I was going to call my office and call them. I'm going to tell them I'm sick because I've done that many times before and figure out what to, what to do. And all of a sudden, my boss answered the phone and I just 
blurted out and started crying and talking about what was going on and all this other kind of stuff. And so he said, well, you know, we got the insurance for it. You know, you check yourself into a rehab facility. Uh, you got all the time off you need and, uh, and uh, just come back when you get well. And, okay. And I went, oh, now I got it off. You know, I can do something else. And then I called, I called my sister. I don't know where that comes. My sister's six years older than me. She's always doing other things and stuff like that. She just lives over in Iowa. And, you know, we just, we never were really that close. And I called her up out of the blue and I told her what was going on. She suggested that I, I check myself into a rehab center or a detox center. And, uh, I, you know, at that time of year, you always have those PSAs at the middle of the night. As soon as the TV is going off air, they have a little public service announcements about if you have a drinking problem, check in here, or if you have a smoking problem, Chick will do this and all this stuff, and then he'll go, and there'll be an Indian head and a test pattern and no more TV. And so I remember that, so I called uh, Charter Oak over here, and uh, they said, well, you, your insurance won't, won't cover your stay here, so you know, try and find someplace else. If you can't get in anywhere else, come back here. So I said, okay. So then I called it up this other facility and they said, well, you need a doctor's appointment to get in. It was in Chino called Canyon Ridge. And uh, so I, I spent the rest of the day in a doctor's office waiting to get a signed form so I could get into this facility. So finally I checked in there about uh, nine o'clock at night. But on my way out of the doctor's office, I'm standing there and I'm, you know, it's like a purple, green, blue tint going on. And the nurse says, you poor, pitiful man to me. And talk about incomprehensible, pitiful demoralization. I felt that. And uh, I finally got into that facility. It was about eight o'clock at night. And uh, they gave, they took my vitals. And uh, I weighed about 135. My blood pressure was 200 over 115. And uh, the nurse said, I don't know what, you know, we're going to dry you out. I don't know what your plans are. They have Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at 6.15 every morning. I suggest you go. Well, as a matter of fact, I'll have somebody wake you up so that you can go. <laughs> so my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was in the Canyon Ridge uh, facility. It was in the gymnasium there. And it's kind of a funny gymnasium because it was carpeted. And it had the basketball forms on the, on the carpet, you know. And I couldn't figure out why they had it. A basketball court with carpet on it, but there was the AA meeting there. They gave me a piece of paper to read. I don't know what it was. I read something. I think it was chapter three. I'm not quite certain. I just know I read something. Guy started talking about speedballing across the country and all this kind of stuff, and I'm going, this, this is, oh no, I don't think so. So uh, after the third day, they came in. They said, you know, your insurance is covering like 99 percent of your stay. Uh, you either can stay here or you can go home. I said, oh, I'm going home. I'm going home. So I get home about 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, and, and the walls start closing in. I'm home all by myself, and the walls are closing in. And I, I, I don't want to drink because physical sobriety at that time was a pretty good deal. You know, I wasn't shaking. I could put food down. It was, it was really a good deal. So um, I had a directory. Uh, there was a noon meeting at the Triangle Club in Pomona. So I showed up in there, and the first thing I see at the Triangle Club in Pomona, if you've ever been in there, they got a really nice painting right in front of the podium, and it's, and it's got a pair of praying hands, and it's a serenity prayer. And I went, God, you're going to start handing out, handing out hymnals? I'm not going for this, you know? And people are cross-talking across the room and yelling and screaming and laughing and stuff like that, and there's, you know, it's like there's something there. I didn't know what it was, but I thought it was kind of crazy. And uh, you know, when I left there, they said, come back, come back. Okay, so, and I raised my hand to the newcomer. And so that night I went back to the club because the walls were closing in at the house and I didn't want to do this. And so I went to the men's stag on Wednesday night at the Triangle Club. And now I want to tell you about brutality is a, a men's stag at an Alano Club because those guys have no mercy whatsoever. So, uh, I didn't like that too much either. So anyway, uh, I ended up at uh, a, a meeting on Thursday night in uh, Laverne at the St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh, 
Uh, Hal Taylor started that meeting, I don't know how many years ago, but uh, he started it. We had to close it down a couple of months ago because we just couldn't make it. But anyway, that that made sense. You know, those people were in there and it was a pretty good sized meeting and that, that became my home up until uh, after the pandemic. So I, I loved that meeting. So I started doing this sobriety thing and uh, you kept on saying, stick with the winners. And I didn't know who they were. You don't tell me who the winners are. You just say, stick with the winners. Well, who are you? Where are you? Come see me. Well, you did, you know, you came and gave me your phone numbers and you asked me to do stuff and went to dances and stuff like that. So I got to know the winners, you know, and, and they're still around and the winners are still around. They're in this, this room right here, or this is outdoors, great outdoors. And uh, so I just started hanging around with this guy. He was teaching himself how to surf. So every Saturday morning, we drive down to San Onofre and he'd teach himself to, to surf. And uh, I'd be sitting there with a couple of girls. We'd go down there and uh, one of them we became really good friends with, Marsha. She lives out in Cherry Valley or something like that now. Uh, Norma and Don, they're gone to the big meeting in the sky. And uh, Paul, he just went to the big meeting in the sky not too long ago himself. But uh, he showed me how to be sober, how to act sober, you know, just have fun sober. And uh, all during that time, um, you know, I was just staying sober. I was just, and because I'm crazy and I don't know that I want to stay sober because, you know, I'm going to get my wife back and there's going to be drinking involved because she drinks like a fish. So I figured, well, you know, I'm just going to stay low for a while. <clears throat> so I go to a bar, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because uh -oh. that's what I'm doing. Yeah, uh oh <laughs> Well, I didn't drink. That was the only good thing about that whole thing. But, you know, I was into uh, happy hour food and that kind of stuff. But uh, And I thought because I was so sober that I could probably make a 12-step call in there. No problem whatsoever. <laughs> That, that didn't work either. <laughs> and at one point in time, after a meeting about nine, ten o'clock at night or something, was after the Thursday night meeting, I walked into that place and I'm sitting there and I'm looking up at the TV and this guy's sitting next to me. I've never seen him before. He says, you look like you're about ready to find God. And I went, wow. yeah, I know. Wow. And uh, so... I figured out I'd rather hang out with sober drunks than drunk drunks any day of the week. So I just resigned myself to this program. It took me a long time to get into the steps. Very important part of this feature of this program are the steps. It helps keep us sober. And uh, I, I met this wonderful woman in front of me. And uh, we actually, it was a mutual friend of ours. And he said, you know, you guys got to get together. So we went out together because okay, we'll shut this guy up, it won't work, Nothing, nothing's going to happen out of it. And here we are, like 27 years later, we're still hanging out. And, uh, you know, we, get to, we got married in here, and I went, finally, I went to a four-step workshop down in Laguna Beach, and I, and I wrote it all out, and, and I gave it to the guy at the step study there, and then I came back and I gave it to my sponsor, and I started working this program. and. Uh, you know, it's just that uh, the the life today is is a uh, is, is a great life. We've had ups and downs, but we try and, and model our marriage after the steps and the principles of this program. And one thing when we went, we got married. We looked all around here for a place to get married, and we really couldn't find anything that clicked. And we go to uh, the Tri-State Roundup every year in May. So when we were we were there, we were looking for a venue uh, to get married on. And at the time, Harris had a yacht that they performed wedding ceremonies on. It was called the Del Rio. And so we booked the Del Rio in September and arranged to have a wedding there. And uh, 43 people made that trip because that's all we could fit on that boat was 43 people. And uh, they made that trip. Some people couldn't drive there, so they took the turnaround bus. And Joan's going, where are the bus people? Are the bus people here yet? You know, because they were coming in on the bus. And, and uh, you know, the, my sponsor at the time, the guy that took me to the beach and all that stuff, I asked him to be my sponsor. 
and I gave him my fist step, and uh, you know he knew me better than anything. Uh, he drove there. He had just had his ankle fused, and he made that four-hour trip there and back. He he bought a, a mobile home in Bullhead City, and um, eventually he decided that AA wasn't for him, so he stopped going to meetings. So I was sponsoring myself for I don't know about five years, and uh, I ended up. Uh, <coughs> at the rebounder meeting on a Sunday morning at the Triangle Club in Pomona, and this gentleman from uh, the 502 Club spoke there, uh, Don Babb, and, uh, you know, he had something, and uh, so we followed him over there, so we, we go to a meeting there at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning, and uh, it's, it's a good meeting, and I go to a live men's book study on, on Wednesday night, 7.30 in Laverne, in Laverne Heights, Presbyterian Church, you're all welcome to come. It's a book study. Just men. I'm sorry, women. Just men. If Joan wants to go. I'm sorry, you can't come. It's just men. And it's a good little meeting. And then I do uh, two Zoom meetings a day, one at 4 o'clock and one at 5 o'clock. Um, I'm going to be a host again for the 4 o'clock meeting. It's a, it's a great meeting. It started March 15, 2020. Uh, has about four or five hundred people go there every day. It's all over the world. You know, people are there from all over the world to uh, hear the message. And uh, I'm going to be host there again. I was a host there before. Uh, I wanted to get some more service equip uh, commitments. So I showed up at the planning meeting for the Inland Empire Convention coming up this April. Uh, if you need flyers, I got some in the car. <laughs> and uh, they made <laughs> I, I say this because I'm the carry the message chairperson for that for that convention, which was a shock to me because you know I'm just an alcoholic. I'm trying to get involved, so that's what I do uh, most most days. I see I'm get, just getting about ready to be finishing, but most days I try and incorporate this program in, in my lifestyle. You know I. I I get up in the morning and sometimes I say, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life's unmanageable. Because first time I said that, I said, my life is unmanageable, I can't be powerless over alcohol. So the guy, the dude that took me surfing says, well, okay, if you don't think you're powerless over alcohol, why don't you figure out mathematically how much beer and alcohol cost you during your lifetime? Wow, I know, huh? <laughs> so you sit there and you try and do the math. Well, I'm 45 years old. I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And, and so I said, well, I, I think maybe about a quarter of a million dollars I'd cover it. And he said, and you don't think you're powerless over drugs and alcohol. So I said, I guess you're right. You know, so I, I moved into that. And uh, and we've been doing a lot about the Step six and seven, they're always, they're always there. You know, we always have stuff that just comes up, our defects of character, just because we're human beings. And the best thing I can say about that is the older you get, the less important they become, you know, basically. Because most of the time, it's just letting go of that kind of problem and letting God take care of it. It's just the letting go of that problem is, is the process. And sometimes I go, what? Ah. Before it even out, I, I gotta have it back. What? Give me that back. I want it back. <laughs> and uh, I, I used to, you know, commute on the freeways, being a salesperson. And you know, you say there's certain things in your life that would happen that you would drink over. And I'm here to tell you that those things happened in my life, and I didn't drink over them. You know, I lost a job. I didn't drink over. I got married. I didn't drink over that. I got a divorce. I didn't drink over that. I got another job. I didn't drink over that. And now I, I come down to the point where I, I retired a couple of years ago. That was a lot of fear involved in that, about having a steady paycheck coming in. Fortunately, they had me working during COVID, so I was at home. And uh, just made the decision to do it. So I said, well, I gotta be busy, and I like to play golf, so. <laughs> I got a job as a marshal over at San Dimas Canyon, and I, I do two shifts a week, and then I play about two or three times a week, and that's my retirement. <laughs> How good is that? How good is that? And it was all because I took certain actions, took, did the footwork, as you say, and got involved in that, and uh, it's a great life. And I don't know what else to say except, you know, 
welcome for all the people that are new here. I hope you stay here as we pray for you every night. At the end of this evening, we're going to have a moment of silence for the alcoholics still suffers. Hope you keep coming back, and thanks for letting me share. I'm not alcoholic. Yes. Let's give John and Tina hand for a great meeting, and Fernando for cooking, and all the service people. We appreciate it. All the people that bring good food every week. Uh, if, if you're interested in getting active in this meeting, uh, see Fernando or I after the meeting. I have an announcement. Go ahead. I'm going to be going to work next week up north. We need individuals. Somebody up here to do the coffee for next week for me. Do the coffee. Carl's coming back to cook, so yep. we'll take care of the cooking. We need someone to take the podium. Uh, it'll probably be uh, um, uh, John Turner. But uh, Nick, would you take the speaker or, or less? We need to take the speaker system, set it up for next week. So who, who, who can I get to do the coffee tomorrow? I mean next week. Come on, give me a hand. Just one time. The coffee. Right here, we have a taker. Okay. Get here about 5 o'clock. Set up. Well, the cook does. The cook does. But, you know, uh, I usually try to get here at 5. Okay? So, uh, and we need the mustard. Somebody take the mustard home. <laughs> okay, right here. We got one person to take the mustard home. All right, thank you. <laughs> no, that's. <laughs> I'm your great friend, Rep. Two years, fifty-four bucks. And and this week you guys brought all kinds of books back. Thank you so much. Now here, what what we do is, I'll give a couple out. You go, you read them, bring them back. We'll spread them around. You know, if you want to take a subscription, give it to a recovery house a hospital send somebody's uh, a, a, a copy for the prison in a prison a doctor's office or whatever these these are great meeting in a print and uh, i have one here really good one uh atheists and agnostic members anybody want one all right whoa timmy a spiritual awakening <laughs> All right. Here's one on home groups. Very important, you know, to have a home group. And uh, this is a whole thing about being connected. So, anybody want to take it? It's free. Come on. Connected. All right. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, this is, this is a real good one, the traditions. You know, the traditions are so important. Our common welfare comes first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. That's what we do here. If we didn't have traditions, we wouldn't even be here. This is one on traditions. Anybody want to come up and read about the traditions? Our protection? I'll, I'll, I'll read about the traditions. Okay, that's good. <laughs> good. Okay, I got a couple more up here. If you want them, come up here and get one, read it, bring it back, and we'll recirculate it. I'd like to thank everybody for sharing. And Tina, and come on up here, and we're going to raffle this stuff off. All right. Thank you so much for participating in our, our raffle each week. We really do appreciate it. Okay. First, we have three books tonight. We got Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. We got Into Action, not into thinking, but into action. And then we have the Visual History of Alcoholics Anonymous. It only took them 87 years to come out with a picture book. Okay, 628 005. 8005. All right. Which one would you like? I think I like the Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob? Yes. Smart. Very good. Thank you. Okay, and now we got one more. Okay. 
Good job. One more, Thank guys. you. Right, Alex. One more. You're gonna win right now. You look like a winner to me. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. She might win. Seven nine seven six. Change the number quick. Seven nine seven six. Anyone? I believe so. We think we have a Yay! We think. We don't know. You got it. Uh, Yay! Wonderful. This go. is a grapevine stories. Oh, good, good. Into action. Oh, uh, no, we, we, um. Trust me. Yeah, we're, we're going to throw. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all done with our raffle tonight. Thank you again for um, you your participation. Yay. You want to read the promises? Yes, of course. Okay, sure. Course. Okay, here. Good evening, guys. My name is Nick, and I'm alcoholic. The promise is, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and our outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and, our, and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will in, intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? No. We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. After a moment of silence for those still suffering in and out of these rooms, please join us in the serenity prayer. Dear God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thank you for letting me be of service. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, watch out. Yeah, don't need an hour taking pictures of us. <laughs> <laughs>